You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. If you haven't yet, please go to timetogowild.com and find out a little bit more about the Go Wild app. Or you can just go to the Google Play Store and download the Go Wild app to your mobile device. Now, I know what you're thinking, what is Go Wild? Now, Go Wild is a social media platform similar to Facebook and Instagram that is focused, and I say focused, with the outdoors, hunting, camping, fishing. If it if it has to do with being outside, then you're going to find a community of like-minded individuals on the Go Wild social media platform. So it's pretty simple. Uh, download the app today at the Google Play Store or wherever you download your apps. Or for more information, visit timetogowild.com. Welcome to the Transition Wild Podcast, the home for those looking for expertise and inspiration on all things Western big game hunting. I'm your host, Adam Parr, and you're listening to episode number 36, where we talk with Gordon Whittington, Editor-in-Chief of North American Whitetail. Hey, how's it going? Thanks again for tuning into the Transition Wild Podcast, hosted on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Thanks again for being here. It's, uh, it's great to have you back. I've recently met some guys at some of the recent trade shows, and um, they've come up to me and said, you know, really enjoy the podcast, really enjoy your stuff, and, you know, I got to talk with them a little bit in person, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. So I uh, appreciate you guys stopping by and seeing me at some of the industry shows, and also the people that send me messages and, and, and leave the reviews on iTunes, all that stuff, it, it really means a lot. I'm uh, right now. I'm on some. I'm traveling for Quiet Cat. We're we're exhibiting currently at the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And if I tell you one thing, um, you got to come check out this show. It's it's people come from all over the U.S. to go to, to attend the show. There's hundreds of thousands of people that walk through the doors, and it's literally the largest hunting, fishing, outdoor show that you can attend um, in this country. So it's pretty cool. It's it's a lot of fun. There's hundreds of different, thousands of different things you can look at from archery products to shooting to fishing to camping to the next cool thing. So um, I highly recommend it. It's it's a really good time. So if you get a chance, go to the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's worth the trip. Um, definitely, definitely check it out. All right. So um, today's podcast, we have Gordon Whittington of North American Whitetail, and he's the editor-in-chief of the magazine they do a TV show, and uh, they also do a lot of digital content on NorthAmericanWhitetail.com. So I had the pleasure of sitting down with Gordon. I met him a few years back at, at, at you know an industry show of all else. I think it's one of the Texas Trophy Hunter shows down in um, Houston or Fort Worth. I can't remember a few years back, but... Um, I've just stayed in touch with Gordon over the past couple of years and, you know, he's given me some advice on some things and, and, uh, we've talked hunting and, you know, public lands and all that good stuff. So on today's episode, we're really just 
diving into a bunch of things whitetail and a lot of that has to do with western whitetail hunting so for the guys that have hunted kind of the northeast midwest the south the west is a whole different opportunity and we talk about kind of the it's a good transition uh hunt between big game in the mountains you know such as elk or mule deer um western whitetail in an open state it's very interactive it's it's uh spot and stock it's it's glassing it's it's putting on the miles so we talk a lot about that we talk a lot about um North American whitetail itself, what they have currently going on uh, with the Brewster Buck, the world record that has recently um, come to light, and they've kind of been covering that whole story. Really, really interesting there. Um, we talk about uh, Gordon's work at North American Whitetail as far as like how he got into the industry and how he got started with all of that. Um, we talk about hunter recruitment and the state of kind of this hunter decline and what we can do to kind of help better better that and 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 have more people involved in this lifestyle and this activities. And um, final thoughts, we kind of touch on the CWD crisis and, and get Gordon's take on that. So just an interesting hour of, of all sorts of different things, whitetail and, you know, where we're at in current day. So I really enjoyed talking with Gordon. Uh, one thing to note, I am recording this at a hotel for, on the road, so there were some spots in the podcast. They're very brief, but there are some spots in there that Gordon was cut out a little bit while he was talking. But, you know, it's not too bad. So bear with me on that. Uh, but let's not wait any longer. Let's get Gordon Whittington on the line. All right. On the line with us now, we have Gordon Whittington from North American Whitetail. How you doing today, Gordon? Man, I'm doing great, Adam. I am uh, hope everybody else out there is as well. All right. Yeah. Where? What? What part of the country in today? You're in the office. Is uh, that's in Georgia, correct? Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, deer season's really winding down, and it's getting to be, um, you know, that dreadful time of year when we have to think about going back to real work. But uh, but that's okay because we're still in the deer business. It's all good, man. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, it's it's this time of year for me, at least with Quiet Cat. I'm. I'm on the travel train, so I'm, I'm hopping to shows. I'm at ATA. I'm you know jumping around. So it's it's busy season, and uh, you know that rolls right after hunting season. So you, you kind of kind of don't get a break in between there till uh, you know March springtime. <laughs> yeah, I think all of us in the hunting industry would would love to see uh, whether it's bow gun or whatever i think we'd all love to see a little bit more of a break between you know the rut and then the holiday with the family and everything and then boom within a couple of weeks you're literally going to the trade shows and then so and then february the consumer shows start up and and as you well know it's just kind of a it's kind of an ongoing cycle but that you know in a, in a way though that's good because it means there's a ton of interest in what we do and the whole hunting lifestyle there're just there's millions of people that are into it and and that's all good that that we're busy you know that beats the alternative right yeah exactly i'd rather be busy than bored and out of a job so <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so have you been going to some of the shows this this winter what what shows have you been attending well we uh to this point um I have only attended the two trade shows. There, you know, consumer shows will kind of crank up here shortly in some of the in some of the major markets and the Ohio's and North Carolinas and, and Wisconsin's places like that. But um, 
from from my standpoint, I mean, actually, the trade shows are, are really critical every year because at North American Whitetail, of course, we naturally we just cover whitetail hunting and management, but that's such a huge category in our industry. Uh, overwhelmingly, the whitetail, of course, dominates uh, the marketplace in terms of number of people who hunt, the amount of money spent hunting, the amount of time spent hunting. It's all really a whitetail world if you think about it. And, and yes, western game and waterfowl and turkey and all that small game, it's all important. It's all part of the mix, but the whitetail is really, uh, you know, a key element in all of that and, a, and really a kind of a keystone species. So for us, we really want to get out there and, you know, work with the industry however we can to spread the positive message about whitetail hunting and management. And, and fortunately, we have a ton of great industry partners out there that we work with. And, uh, and this year at the ATA show, the Archery Trade Association show in Louisville, we were able to really have kind of a nice editorial coup because we were able to get that mega giant non-typical taken in illinois last year uh shot by luke brewster a young guy from virginia and he shot you know what is now going to be the biggest hunter taken whitetail of all time wow 320 and 5 eighths net non-typical that's that's like number three boone and crockett and the only two bigger were both found dead you know wow. the Missouri monarch and the hole in the horn buck and they're not much bigger than this deer and and Luke shot this deer as his second deer he'd ever shot, uh, you know, buck he'd ever shot with a bow. And, oh, by the way, it's the biggest hunter taking whitetail of all time. And and so we were able to reveal the deer to the public. We had Luke with the deer in our booth at the ATA show, and we revealed the deer. We revealed the score, literally, that had not even been announced previously publicly there at the show. And, of course, that caused a lot of buzz and it's a deer that we have on the cover of our new spring issue of North American Whitetail, which literally just went on newsstand uh, sale, you know, February 5th. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, so we're really excited about being able to bring out a story like this about a deer of this quality. And and, and the great thing, too, Luke's just an understated, modest, low-key, uh, 30-year-old guy who, who, you know, he'd been to Marines. He'd been to Afghanistan twice. He'd gone back as a defense contractor. He worked for the power company in Virginia. Now he's just an all-American boy, yeah. and he killed this, you know, all all-world deer. And so for us, it's just a really good feel-good story. Not a not just about him and his deer, but really, you know, Illinois rebounding with a deer of this magnitude after a few down years and uh, a deer of this caliber. Period coming from anywhere, especially with a vertical bow, is just. It's just a really cool story, and it was a long quest, and it involved his buddies, and there's just a really good positive element to every part of this story, and so we're just really thrilled to bring something like that out to the public. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really cool. What's it What's it like to put your hands on a, you know, 300-inch plus whitetail, world record whitetail? Is that pretty cool? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always cool. There's only been seven deer of that size, including the ones found dead, uh, that have ever been documented in the wild that will net 300 inches. And Wow. And this this obviously is one of them. We have a replica of the hole-in-the-horn buck from Ohio, you know, 1940. That's 328 and two eights, And we have a replica mounted of that deer in our office here. And so... You know, we're kind of used to seeing big antlers or what look, you know, a, a replication of big antlers. But Luke's deer is so exceptional, really, because if you if you look at the deer, his left side is just 
incredibly big. Yeah. In fact, it's over 191 itself on his left <laughs> antler alone. Jeez. Now, if if that if that left antler, I was telling somebody the other day, I said, look, here's here puts it in perspective. If that left antler were a barren ground caribou shed, it would be the world record single shed for barren ground caribou. Wow. And yet it's a, it's a, it's a white tail antler. It's bigger than the world record Roosevelt elk single shed uh, in the record book. So, you know, you start to look at the where this antler really, you know, how it stacks up even not just against other white tails. It's absolutely the biggest single white tail shed of all time, in fact, uh, or single antler of all time. Um, the, the Minnesota monarch from the early 1990s, uh, you know, it was never killed, but that deer, the world record set of sheds, and even the biggest side of it, the bigger side of it's the right antler, it scores 180 and 08. Well, and it's gigantic, obviously, but this deer is 11, uh, 11 inches bigger than that on his left side. And so he's just really just this total freak of nature and... You know, every hunter's dream is to kill a 190, right? Well, this guy killed one on one side. <laughs> <laughs> that is insane. You know, it's just amazing, really. I mean, you know, and it just proves that you just never know. There's 30 million whitetails or thereabouts running around at any given time, and it only takes one total freak of nature to rewrite the record book, and that's basically what we have here. Now, do you ever think that that record will be broken um, like within the next couple of years, because like wasn't there a wasn't there a buck a few years ago that was shot in Tennessee? I mean, it was a gun kill, right? But I mean, just a couple of years after that, now we're already pushing the the limits of that and breaking that record. Like, where do we stand with this whole you know world record thing? Is it going to be broken in a couple of years? Do you see that coming down the line? Well, you can't you, you can't never say know. never for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you really can't say. Adam, here's the deal about it: is that in 2016 when when Stephen Tucker killed that 312 and 08 with a muzzleloader in Tennessee, of all places. Everybody said, well, good grief, that's that's going to be hard to top, obviously, because the <laughs> yeah. love stone at 307 from Iowa in 2003 was the hunter-kill world record before then. And so, you know, yeah, it had been creeping up over the, over the last 15, 20 years, but to jump out from from 307 to 312 everybody said wow that that probably won't get broken but now 2 years later literally with a vertical bow a guy kills a 320 and Jeez. hey there was a there was a little bit of ant, there was a little bit of antler broken off this deer and he's still 320 and 58s i mean and so he's by 8 and you know 58 inches right now the way it stands you know pending panel score He's the biggest hunter taking whitetail of all time, so I feel confident in saying, I believe he's going to hold that title. Uh, you know, not not just once he gets panel scored, but realistically, I mean, yeah, anything could happen. But I, I just turned 63. I don't expect to see a bigger one in my career. I'll put it that way. Now, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I don't think the odds favor me being wrong <laughs> in, in this case. I mean, that's that's getting up to the upper limits of wild antler growth. Yeah. Yeah, that's a giant. That's a giant. Um, very cool. Very cool, Gordon. Um, so you said that's going to be that's on stands currently right now in February. Exactly. Yeah, it just went on on sale um, here the first week of February, and so you know because we don't have an, an issue to replace it right behind it like we do in the fall every month, uh, 
it's probably, you know, assuming it doesn't sell out, it's, there's probably going to be issues of it scattered here and there for the next few weeks. So uh, obviously we, we really, we're very excited about the story because, uh, number one, it's a very good story, and it's a multi-year quest among several people trying to shoot this deer, and for it to be, for it to kind of come down like it did, it's just really an unlikely story with a lot of interesting twists to it. So, uh, and again, I just thrill for a for a young hunter like this who's really you know served his country, you know, multiple deployments to Afghanistan, and really just uh, one of those kind of guys that 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 just really pull for you know. And so it's just uh, it's just an ideal. It's a great buck, but it's also you know a, a great young guy that killed it, and it's just a very positive story. Great, great. Looking forward to checking that out. Um, so what have, what have you been up to lately, Gordon? Have you been doing any late season hunting? I know you've uh, you know done some late season Texas whitetails in the past. Uh, what what you've been up to here in January outside of the shows? Well, actually, my in in January I've kind of I've kind of tapered off on my hunting because I had so much else going on, especially even with this uh, special story for the spring issue. But in December I was able to take a couple of nice uh, mature bucks, two two five and a half year old bucks in Texas. Nice. And but they were like six hundred miles apart. But they were both in Texas, and the first one was up in the up in the Panhandle, and I was rifle hunting in both cases. I was using my uh, my old Browning X Bolt 270, and it was a really good choice for this year in Texas because the first deer, uh, way up in the Panhandle, hunting with my buddy uh, uh, Ty Sims up there, T Fork Outfitters. We were hunting an area that I'm not sure there was a tree within five miles of where I killed this deer. This it looked like. You know, if you see footage from the Mars rover, you know, going out across the landscape, it's like <laughs> this is kind of what the land looked like. It was like these red rocks and, and gullies and arroyos and things, and there was no tall brush. There was no – there wasn't even any tall grass. It was just – there were some wheat fields a mile or two away, and these deer came out of these canyons. We went up there to feed, so in the morning they'd drift back into these canyons to, to you know, bed up for the day. We saw this deer coming from like 500 yards away, and – Wow. I finally shot him at like 185 and, uh, you know, dropped him right there. So it was a really good hunt for North American Whitetail TV. And then, now again, that's way up in the in the northeast Texas panhandle. My next hunt was with Dr. James Kroll, uh, you know, one of my buddies on the TV show and here at the magazine. And we were hunting down on the coastal bend of Texas. So that's, as the crow flies, probably, you know, 600 miles away. And so we were hunting down there in some kind of brush country, coastal type habitat, which was uh, totally different where we were hunting in the Panhandle. But uh, and then down there, the rut was still going pretty good. So I shot a really nice um, five and a half year old buck down there, um, coming to a food plot, and uh, made a really good another really good hunt for TV. And Dr. Crow shot a nice deer himself. It was also five and a half. So. We were able to take some really, uh, really good representative Texas uh, bucks for where we were hunting, and again, all low fence. I know a lot of people think, oh, all that Texas stuff is all, you know, just killing deer, you know, in some kind of high fence, intensively managed situation. But, but these are just totally open range whitetails. They could come and go as they like, and so uh we're very pleased to to take those deer yeah yeah well, it sounds like that panhandle hunt was more along the lines of like a western you know you're covering some some serious terrain and and putting on some mm-hmm. miles is that kind of like similar to maybe what you envision as more of a western kind of whitetail hunt there 
Yeah, it really is because, you know, anytime you get away from timber, see, I grew up in a part of, of central Texas and on a cattle ranch that was in the, what they call the hill country. Well, that has, that has trees, but everything's kind of scrubby, kind of low growth, a lot of brush. Uh, and rolling grassland and, and rocky hills and things. So for for me, like I live right outside of Atlanta now, and everything over here is timber. Unless it's a clear cut or a field or a power line, everything is just woods. And when I say woods, I mean, you know, a lot of the trees are 100, 120 feet tall. And so you can't even see the sun unless you look straight up, you know. Yeah. And so for for me, it's like a little claustrophobic to hunt over here in the east. <laughs> but when I get – so when I get back to places like the Texas Panhandle or north of there up through the, through the Great Plains or west of there, obviously, into parts of the Rockies or the southwest, then that to me is a more comfortable kind of a place. And I – you know, that to me is more like my idea of hunting because I like to be mobile. I like to be able to cover ground. I like to be able to see a long way. And, you know, and sometimes in those places, it isn't that the deer densities are higher than they are in other places. It's just that you can see deer better because you have so much more visibility. And particularly if you can get on a high point and really glass way, way off, sometimes, you know, you see these deer you know, it's more of a Western type of thing. You see a deer two two miles away, maybe, and then you can try to decide if it's even in a place where you can get to the deer. But, you know, at least you feel like you're an active, it's a dynamic hunting style as opposed yeah. to just sitting at one spot in a thicket and hoping a deer walks down one trail through one shooting lane and you can get a shot. You know, that's, that's, it's, it's all fun, but I'm really more of an open country kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, no, and I try to I try to promote, not promote, but like I I try to tell everybody to experience the West and and Western whitetail hunting. Like a lot of what I do now is more big game, you know, mountain elk hunting, mule deer, that sort of thing. But my roots are in Michigan, but kind of that that mm-hmm. that that middle ground is you know Western whitetail and being able to hunt you know the Texas Panhandle or oklahoma or western nebraska or eastern colorado it's very hands-on it's interactive it's spot and stock it's glassing it's a whole different environment that you know like where i grew up in michigan hunting tree stands and small parcels it's pretty cool yeah exactly and here's the thing about it if you a lot of people are intimidated by really open country uh, because they grew up in the woods and they say well good good grief i you know if i go out into into kansas and i look around and i can't see a tree or a you know, it's just a bunch of grass and brush. I don't know where to start. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I'm not comfortable hunting on the ground. Uh, I don't, I've never used a decoy or rattled. And, and there's a lot of things that we take as being common practice out there that are just different from the way a lot of people grew up hunting. And even though they see it on TV and even though they may have read about it, you know, we write about this stuff in North American Whitetail, but a lot of people, it's still a little bit foreign to them unless they've gone and done it themselves. And and I would tell anybody that if you really want to have some fun and break away from, you know, your usual hunting back east or in the south, but you you don't really know that you want to go all the way with caribou or, you know, elk or something like that, then then a really good introduction to that style and, and flavor of hunting big game hunting in open country is to hunt whitetail in the Great Plains because that really that really gives you an animal that you already know its demeanor and its habits and its biology 
but you're just hunting it in a more open type of area. And then it, after that, a lot of people say, well, now I want to go hunt. Now I want, now that I'm used to this, I want to go hunt antelope. I want to go hunt mule deer. I want to go hunt elk or whatever. Yep. Well, that's great. That That's a nice stepping stone. And many of us are happy to just continue to hunt whitetails. We don't even take it as a stepping stone to hunting caribou. We just go hunt whitetails in open country. And for a lot of us, that's really, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a real enjoyment in that and, and still a lot of challenge because, you know, big deer are hard to kill. I don't care where you go. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, when my first hunt to Kansas, uh, we hunted more of the western side, and uh, my buddy and I showed up. We got there the first day. We started driving around and just trying to cover as much terrain as possible to kind of learn the area. We were both, we were both like, where where would the deer be like it's just open ground it's open country we're not used to all this grass and being able to see everything but you know you just they will bed literally anywhere the smallest little thicket you know in some crp grass they'll be close to the road and a little you know under a little cedar tree or something they don't need much and it's crazy how well they can hide in those open areas well it certainly is in fact if you take if you take a little block of Let's say you've got a 40-acre square block of, of tall CRP grass in central Kansas, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've hunted a lot of places like that. And that grass really, you know, you're driving down the road, you think, well, there's nothing there. But you step off into that grass and you realize this stuff is, is, is eye or head deep. It is thick as hair on a dog's back. And even though it's not briars and stuff, it is so much cover here that if you're 50 yards from a deer unless it jumps up or blows at you or does something you probably will never have a clue it was there yeah so in a in a 40 acre block of of tall crp like blue stem grass in kansas you could literally have 200 boone and crockett's bedded in it honestly (laughs) and you would never drive down the road you'd never know there was a deer within 50 miles of you because they just you cannot be you cannot see them but they're right there under your nose and that's why a lot of these guys are shocked they go out there bird hunting you know with pheasant drives and things like that and and that's when they see these giant bucks and they're out in the middle of nowhere no brush no no nothing except grass and yet these guys are kicking up pheasants and oh by the way here's a boone and crockett whitetail jumps up under your feet and so it comes as a shock. But if you think about it, the deer are merely utilizing what's there to their advantage. And obviously, it's working for them because that's, you know, those places have a lot of mature bucks. And yeah. a, lot of, a lot of places that have heavy timber don't have a lot of mature bucks because, you know, of, of, of the amount of hunting pressure. Yeah. But uh, some, of the, some of those open places really do have a very good age structure and a really good buck-doe ratio. For sure, and and speaking of Kansas, you were out there this past fall. We were we were staying in touch, texting back and forth, and and you killed a great deer out there in Kansas this fall. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I was hunting, kind of jumping back and forth between doing a little bit of hunting on some public land in Oklahoma, and jumping back and forth into Kansas, where I had a tag uh, for for a zone in southern Kansas. And I was hunting some private land up there, and a friend of mine had had a place we had access to. We set up a ground blind along a creek bottom that was right next between an oat field to the north that was just starting, uh, excuse me, a wheat field that was just starting to come up. And then there was a little, little uh, pretty wet little creek in between. And then to the south of there, there was a big expanse of sand hills, which were kind of brushy with 
plumb thickets and things. And so this creek bottom became, as the rut cranked up in early November, this creek bottom became an area that where a lot of does were hanging in uh, close to that field, and yet the bucks were coming out of these sand hills down into that bottom to, to snoop for does. So we shot a really nice uh, four-and-a-half-year-old 11-pointer, um, shot him with the 10-point the crossbow, made a good shot on him, and uh, should make some really good TV for North American whitetail uh, you know, coming, coming up uh, basically this fall. And so um, that to me is like a really fun part of the world to hunt because you know, we had trail cameras out, but we had not seen this buck before. We were hunting a 10-pointer that was about the same size, but he'd been in there like three times in three days. But yet when we were sitting there, we never saw him. But we kept seeing these other deer coming and going, and the buck we shot was the first time we'd actually seen him. So, you know, that time of year out in that open country where deer are kind of moving from pocket to pocket of population, bucks are trying to look for a hot doe, you don't know what could come from two or three or four miles away overnight and suddenly be right in front of you the next day. And that's that's a fun thing about hunting open country, especially with some some creek drainages and things like that, where the deer travel up and down these uh, these corridors. Mm-hmm. And you know, a deer could be on somebody's trail camera three miles away yesterday afternoon, but yet this morning at 807. He's standing right in front of you in a totally different piece of property because they just really get up and travel that time of year. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. And uh, and then you said you were hunting Oklahoma as as did I this past season, as you know. Um, but how did how did the rest of that shape up? I know you were you were you said you were hunting some public land down there. Yeah, we were hunting public, and uh, it's it's always tricky when you're hunting with a cameraman and you're having to lug all that equipment, and you're really trying to go way back in, away from the crowds. As it turned out, there weren't really any many other people hunting. Um, you know, some of that country gets hit pretty hard by quail hunters when when the season opens, like the second weekend of November. But before then, you know, kind of in that late pre-rut between the muzzleloader and the uh, and and the first and the gun season in the middle of November is when we were hunting. Uh, we ran into some kind of finicky weather. That turned out we kind of a lot of point dumped her or lost her out in the middle of nowhere and. We spent a day trying to get that dog taken care of and find a home for it and everything. And by the time that was over with, we were starting to run short of time, so we bailed out. But I was very impressed, uh, even though we didn't shoot a deer in Oklahoma, we saw some bucks on public land. And I was very impressed with the potential there because I just feel like the perception is going to be, well, public land anywhere is just beaten to death and the deer are nocturnal and there's no older bucks or whatever. But I'll tell you, some of those tracks are really large and they're very far from human population centers. And based on what I saw, I mean, maybe it's different in gun season, but in bow season, not that many people are hunting. And I believe there's a lot of opportunity in places like that, as well as Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, et cetera, maybe even, you know, eastern Colorado if you have a tag. But I just feel like that kind of country has great potential for a bow hunter who is uh, who's mobile and is willing to walk a little ways. For sure. And that's what I tell everybody. Like, I, I hunted Iowa a couple of years ago, and, and, and although we met some cool people on that trip from, from Michigan of all places, um, 
you know, you just see so many more people hunting the same areas as you. And, you know, you see a guy at a parking spot and, you know, you got to move on or um, whatever. Um, You know, you get into some of these Western states, you just don't see the hunting pressure across the board. Like you said, whether it's Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, um, you're just not running into those droves of of people. And and really, you can just kind of almost it's almost like you're hunting by yourself and you have free reign over whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah, and the cool thing about it is because, you know, if you are hunting by yourself and there's nobody else in an area, you don't have to feel bad about, you know, picking up and moving over to the next ridge or trying to put a stalk on a buck, you see, because there's you're probably not going to mess anybody else up, frankly. Yeah. Now, and, and on public land, people say, well, I'm not going to worry about that anyway. It's every man for himself. But it's always nice to feel like, you're kind of one-on-one with the deer and that there isn't any other influence on the outcome of your hunt. I mean, if you, if you get in the right spot and you make a good shot and you make the right moves, then you've got a chance without being fouled up by somebody else to have a quality encounter with, with a nice deer. And, and, and normally you say, well, gee, you'd have to have a big private lease to do that. Well, again, on some of these really open, big, uh, kind of desolate and remote public areas that opportunity still exists i mean people just don't realize it because they haven't really seen it for themselves i guess exactly exactly well cool stuff gordon hey uh let's let's jump back a little bit i want to i want to talk about your your position more here at north american whitetail but um talk about uh, maybe your background a little bit like how you got into hunting where you grew up and in kind of how you evolved into maybe your position today as editor-in-chief of North American Whitetail. Well, to be honest with you, Adam, I, you know, people say, well, how do you get into the business you're in or how did you get to be where you are? And I, and I say, you know, the funny thing about it is pretty much everyone I know in the hunting industry came at it from a different angle. Yep. And there isn't there isn't just one career path like there might be for an accountant or for an attorney or something. I mean, it's just, you know, some people are just kind of, quote, born with the hunting interest or the passion, if you will. It really is a passion. And then they have the, you know, psychologically or through training or opportunity or whatever else, they have the opportunity and, 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 and step through that door to take the next step. And and I started early. I you know, I grew up on a cattle ranch in Central Texas. Uh, you know, we had deer pretty much in the yard when I was growing up as a kid in the early 60s. Uh, killed my first deer when I was seven. I was sitting on my grandpa's knee in a ground blind, and I shot a doe. And I was using an old 3220 Model 92 Winchester carbine that except for the fact that it didn't have the big hoop lever on it, it literally was pretty much the same one that John Wayne was using in True Grit. I mean, you know, it, in fact, the one we had and still have this gun is like only a few hundred serial numbers different from the one that he used in the movie. Wow, so, that's cool. You know, so, it, so it's pretty cool, and I, you know, and, and I tell everybody, I've said this many times, I said, I shot this doe through the heart, and deer hunting at the same time shot me through the heart because <laughs> I couldn't imagine anything that was any cooler than being a deer hunter. And so my grandpa was a huge influence on me there. He got me started with that and turkey hunting. And, and I, I, we had a creek running through our ranch right there near our house. And we could fish any time we wanted to unless it was a bad drought and the creek dried up. But we could always go do things outdoors. And so my brother's two years younger than me. 
he was always more of a guy that was into looking for arrowheads and things like that. He liked to hunt and fish, but not like I did. And so for me, it was always just this passion. And what allowed me to take it farther, I guess, was when I was about seven or eight years old, I, I'd already kind of decided I wanted to be a writer because that was seemed to be what my aptitude was for. I mean, I wasn't any good at math. I was terrible at geometry. All these kind of things that other people think are easy to me were really hard. But writing for me was always easy. And so, you know, and different people have different strengths. And so because of my background in hunting and fishing, and, oh, by the way, my parents also own the local meat processing plant, and every year they would take in about 800 to 1,000 deer that people had killed in the area to process the deer. So I was exposed to that side of deer hunting and all of that uh, part of the culture of it, if you will, and a lot of different people that came and went that talked about hunting and and so I just grew up around it, and it seemed totally natural to me. And again, being around livestock, I mean, hunting to me was just kind of a, an extension of agriculture, really. And and again, we lived out on the land. We didn't live in town. And so I was blessed in many ways to have, uh, you know, the, the fuel there for the, you know, that would that would allow me to go on and 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 live out this kind of a, some people would call a fantasy life, which is, Oh, getting paid to hunt and fish. Well, as you well know, in the industry, it's not quite like that. We actually don't really get paid to hunt and fish. We actually just, you know, we we, we grind out a regular job, but it, but it opens doors for us to go do some cool things. And so for me, I, you know, we didn't, I had, I had 21 other kids in my senior class of high school. So it's not like I'm a product of a big educational system. I did get my uh, magazine journalism degree from the University of Texas, um, and that was in the late 70s. And then I went to work for uh, locally some smaller papers. I got a break to come be a – I'd done a little bit of freelance writing for a magazine called Texas Sportsman, which was a monthly out of Dallas. And they were looking for an associate editor. I was doing newspaper work. They asked me to come to work for them. And then that company was ultimately bought by the company that was in the process of founding North American Whitetail here in Georgia. And so I ended up in 1984 coming to Georgia, and I've been here ever since uh, in Cobb County, just northwest of Atlanta. And North American Whitetail has grown, obviously, from that point on to be what it is today. And I've just happened to have been right here the whole time so that's kind of a windy way of saying i have no idea how i got here <laughs> but, but here but you honestly, are <laughs> i mean yeah but but i'm still here they they haven't run me off yet so and it's been a it's been an interesting ride because ultimately you know if you look back at it you say well the time north american whitetail started in the early 80s that was just the formation of the first swells of this giant wave of trophy whitetail hunting that that has since gone on to be this this you know huge movement. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, at the time, people, I mean, literally back then, people, a lot of them didn't even realize deer shed their antlers every year. A lot of people would say, well, as an eight pointer, he must be eight years old. Uh, you know, if you said rub, they thought you meant scrape, and vice versa. I mean, they there yeah. was not much knowledge really, and so you know, nobody thought you should ever kill a doe. I mean, there were a lot of things back then that were just seemed really just like, you know, just like you know, prehistoric now. But now we take them for granted, and especially with social media and TV and so many other aspects of the digital world, it's made it so much easier to learn and communicate. 
and to share knowledge and all that. But back then, it was really, I mean, it was really hard to find good deer information. So I think as that interest was growing and North American whitetail was was just getting started, I think they kind of grew hand in hand. And not just saying just North American whitetail, I mean, but all the specialized media that focus more on trophy whitetails, um, you know, I think it was, to some extent I came along at the right time. It wasn't that I had some magic formula as much as I think I was at uh, the right place at the right time, and we just stayed with it. And and now we hear from a lot of people that say, man, I've been reading the magazine since I was, you know, since I was a kid. Of course, that makes me feel older because I was here when they were doing, <laughs> when they were kids. But but nonetheless, it does make you feel good that so many people say, hey, it's been a big part of what uh, of me growing and. Uh, not just increasing my skills as a hunter, but also my knowledge of the animal, my appreciation of the hunting culture, and just everything to do with deer hunting. And so that does make us feel good. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that yeah? What what is the most satisfying aspect to your position? Is it kind of more the educational side and getting to interact with some of these people that I've learned from you over the years, or is it kind of like covering some of these major deer stories? Um, what's what's your favorite part about your job? Well, it's always fun to talk to people who have shot a a world class deer. Now, now that's always cool because. From my standpoint, I've been on my side or, or my end of the phone line or my side of the desk for this hundreds of times. But yeah. for every one of those people, it's always the first incredible event that's, that they can't imagine how it happened to them. Well, so from my standpoint, a lot of times I end up almost being a life coach to some of them <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. they, they Talking them through they've, it. Never had, they've, they've never had to worry about, well, I mean, what, you know, who do I talk to about getting replicas made? And what if people want, you know, me to come to bring my deer to a show or, you know, all these different aspects of it, yeah. you know, getting it scored and all these things. A lot of these people, naturally so, they've never been exposed to it before because super deer tend to get shot by just random people. If you look at even these 300-inch deer we're talking about, the five that have been shot by hunters – um, you know, Mike Beatty was a guy 31 years old in, in 2000 working for the phone company in, you know, in Ohio, and he killed the Pope and Young world record. Well, he had never killed a really big deer before. Luke Brewster, who just shot this 320, he'd shot one deer with a bow before, and that was a two-and-a-half-year-old 10-pointer the year before. Wow. Uh, Stephen Tucker, who shot the 312 in Tennessee in 2016, He's a 26-year-old farm boy. When he shot it, he killed some deer, but he'd never killed anything remotely like what he shot that year. And so so it's fun, and it is satisfying to help these guys. I mean, I've had so many of them come back to me later because we stay friends is what happens. Yeah. People think, well, it's a business deal, and you, you cover their deer, and then you move on to the next deer. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the nature of our business, but honestly – I tell anybody, say, hey, they say, well, you know Milo Hanson? Well, sure, I know Milo. I mean, we're still good friends. Do you know Mike Beatty? Yeah, we're really good friends, you know. And so to me it's satisfying because that, on a personal level, I enjoy seeing good people uh, be recognized for their achievements. And even if they just kind of kill the deer randomly as, quote, luck, um, as long as it's an ethical you know, a responsible legal hunter that does it and everything's above board. I am just thrilled because I think that 
inspires and motivates the average guy out there to think that, that you know this literally could happen to me. Yeah. In fact, in in fact, the cover copy of the Luke Brewster story uh, issue that's out there right now, the spring issue of North American Whitetail, is I put on the cover in quotes, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. And that's what he said. And if that's not inspiring to all of us who are sitting in a tree or, you know, sitting there frozen, can't hadn't seen a deer in three days, and you're thinking, man, this is what's the point. But then you remember the Luke Brewsters and the Mike Beatties of the world who say it just – this giant deer just fell out of the sky and it picked me almost, you know? And, and if that doesn't keep you going, I don't, I don't know what would, you know? Yeah. So that to me is, that to me is a very, uh, that's a very satisfying part of, 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 of covering these deer. I like to tell people we celebrate the deer and we're not trying to make the hunter out to be, you know, Tarzan. We're not doing any, we're not, we're just saying that, you know, this is a magnificent animal, you know? It's a magnificent animal. It's, it, the guy is blessed to kill a great deer. Um, as a group, these hunters that have killed these super bucks have really been very humble people. They say, man, it's like, I don't know why I deserve this, but, but it's a special deer. But yet they want to pay, pay tribute to the deer, and they, and they trust us to help them do that. And, and I take that very seriously because I, don't, I know these deer will get a lot of attention, and I don't want it to come across as a negative that, oh, these guys are just macho trophy hunters, they don't eat the meat, you know, they're just divas, they're prima donnas or whatever. Well, you know, there's a lot of that perception out there. And and part of my job, I feel like, is to is to dispel that. Yeah. To say, no, look, these are regular people, hardworking, whether they're Canadian, Mexican, American, whatever they are, they're basically hardworking people that love the outdoors, and they were blessed to have an opportunity to take a really special animal. So let's all celebrate it because it's it's a positive and it's a win for all of us really and whoever the next guy is will he or she will be blessed too but you know for the here and now let's just talk about what special exceptional animal this is because that reflects well on the hunter the technique the equipment used the land management the state wildlife agency everybody can take pride in a story like that um, and it doesn't have to be about jealousy and sniping and all this stuff that you hear that's negative. Um, you know, let's just celebrate the animal and and uh, and appreciate this this incredible individual animal that came came down the trail and the process that led to now being able you know to put him on the wall, put him in the record book. I, that to me is very special. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's cool to see guys like you mentioned. They're they're just DIY guys. They're everyday Joes. They're out there, mm-hmm. and they and they have this once in a lifetime buck come in front of them, and they and they capitalize on it. That's just that's that's what's cool, you know. And that's what I admire about your work in in the magazine and you know North American Whitetail is that you're you're highlighting these hunters that are just everyday guys. I think everyone gets a little bit tired of seeing the same you know, same quote unquote celebrities all the time, shoot these 160, 180, you know, 200 inch deer. And it's just like, well, that's not relatable. You know, that's not me. That's, that's, you know, a whole different realm of hunting. Whereas, you know, it's, it, this is, this is a different aspect. It's really just admiring and, 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 uh, you know, really celebrating that deer or magnificent animal that just an everyday guy and that could happen to anybody, which is, which is really cool. 
Yeah, we try to, you know, we, we, we try to keep things in perspective, Adam, because I think what you run into sometimes is this perception that, well, everybody understands that it's not cheap. You're going to go to the Arctic Circle, it's going to cost you 15, 20 grand to go shoot a muskox. Okay. They know that is a kind of a quote, rich man's sport. Yep. Now, but yet you look at a whitetail and you say, well, that ought to be just about anybody and everybody from the guy out on the WMA to the guy on a hunting club or anywhere else, the guy that owns his own land. I mean, everybody's still hunting basically the same animal. But yet you get people that say, well, look, I never. Look, only thing, only thing I can do is hunt the WMA, and I've never killed a ten pointer in my life. And I hunt really hard, and I, but I can't hunt. You know, I can't take off a lot of time to go. I, I just go when I can, and can't spend any money at it. But one of these days, I hope to kill a ten pointer. And now they look and say, well, look, every week, you know, for weeks on end, I'll see the same guy on TV or in a video or whatever else. He's shooting these just monster bucks. And it acts like there's nothing to it. Mm-hmm. Now that can e- that can either inspire you or depress you. One of the two. And, and quite often, after a while, people say, "Well, there must be something different about his situation because I don't see how he could be hunting a lot different from me, but he kills a lot different deer than I do." And so then people then it becomes kind of a have and have not sort of a. It, it 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 starts to fracture the hunting community into well if you're not one of these special guys or with special access or whatever know the right people or have the right money you can't be one of the real hunters well everybody's a real hunter i mean some of the best hunters i've ever met were guys from pennsylvania or new york they were killers high but pressure if you look at their wall if you look at their wall they didn't have any deer that would score 140 inches but yeah. I'll guarantee you, these were these were guys you didn't want them hunting you, because <laughs> man, they were they were they were killers. I mean, you know. But yet, lack of opportunity to kill big deer is not the same as saying you can't kill them. You know, exactly. and so you can't judge a man or a woman by what's on their wall. You just can't, I and mean, you can't do it anyway. But you really can't even judge their hunting skill by what they, how often they go to the taxidermy shop. Because some people just don't have opportunity, and other people do. I mean, and so that's why I say if I shoot a nice deer, it's mostly opportunity. You know, I'm not a better hunter than the next guy. I just have a chance to hunt some better places, and maybe, you know, maybe I have, yeah, I've been hunting for almost 60 years now. So, yeah, I do have some experience, but I'm not, you know, I'm not Tarzan either. I mean, some of us just are blessed with greater opportunity, so you have to keep it all in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's all this talk of, you know, and the numbers reflect this hunter hunters are on the decline. Um, do do you think Mm -hmm. that, do you think that there's some of that has to do with this perception of like trophy hunting and, and it's a rich man's sport and it's getting harder and harder to find good deer and the opportunities and, you know, just getting kind of pushed out of it. Do you think that has something to do with, with hunter numbers and the decline or is it, you know, a, a number of things? Well, I think the biggest thing we could say <clears throat> overall, if you start to just look at pure demographic shifts, we start to see that. Uh, and I, I know, I know you. You're a you're a relatively young, hard charging go getter, and, <laughs> and you're going to go you're going to you're going to go find opportunity because you're passionate enough and skilled enough at it, uh, and it's a, and it's it's a, it's a focus for you. Yeah. But but it, but if you had grown up. Um, 
you know, in a suburban area, nobody in your family or your friend circle or any any connection to hunting. And that's, that describes a lot of people. You know, a single-parent household headed by women in suburban areas with no male mentor, that right there breaks the connection and the chain that has historically led to developing new hunters. Mm. And yeah. so that that right there is a big part of it. I'm not, you know, it's not. I'm not making a statement about society or culture, our culture per se. But I will say that just the numbers alone, if you look at what typically develops a hunter, it is a it is an older male family member or close connection in some way, whether it's through church, whether it's uh, the neighbor down next door. Hey, come go with us. We're going to go hunting. His son already hunts. I mean, you get in as a friend. First thing you know, you get hooked on it. Uh, fishing's the same way, but I guess you could say golf and tennis and whatever the same way too. But a lot of things you, you know, you know, to, to go play tennis, you can probably wander around your neighborhood and find a tennis court. You know, <laughs> yeah. or you can go play. You can, or you can go play in the street by whacking the ball around with your buddy. But you can't do that with hunting. So you not only have to have the impetus to go, you have to have the opportunity, and you certainly have to have the place. <clears throat> and the me. gear, so, not to mention the gear. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so that is really when you start to look at it, you say, well, it, it, you know, it's not a quote cheap sport. And number one, I don't think I don't call hunting a sport anyway. But even if you say it's it's not a it's not a cheap activity, you know, unless you already have a gun and a box of ammo and a place to go use it, and then you can buy a cheap license. I mean, there's, and then you can just walk out behind your house and hunt. Well, how many people can do that anymore? I mean, yeah. I could do it as a kid. I could do it as a kid. You know, I don't know your situation, but you probably know a lot of people that could do that growing up, but it's getting progressively harder to do that, and there's fewer places to go. And we talk about these wide-open places out in Kansas or Nebraska or Oklahoma but, you know, a guy sitting there and saying, man, I'm in Newark, New Jersey, and I want to go do that, <clears throat> he's got to go halfway across the continent, buy a three, four, $500 tag, buy all this equipment, and then stay out there for a week and then get home. Even though, even though it's, quote, free access, it's still not a free hunt. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> and so there's a lot of things economically, culturally, and <clears throat> societally that I think are working really just totally contrary to to the growth of what we do. That said, I think on an individual basis, people exposed to it, I mean, male, female, black, white, you know, Hispanic, Asian, you name it, people have a fundamental instinct to hunt. I mean, it's just, and some people have it more than others, as you know, but some people are just, I mean, I just think human nature is to, to, you know, to be interested in hunting if you get exposed to it properly. And that doesn't mean everybody will become Daniel Boone, doesn't mean everybody will go if they go one time, they'll want to keep going. It doesn't mean any of that, but it means a high percentage of people will at least find it an acceptable activity and an enjoyable activity if properly exposed to it. And I think, yes, you could say that about a lot of things in life, but I think hunting is particularly that way even with people that don't think they'd have any interest in it, if they're properly exposed to it, a lot of them, number one, they'll at least tolerate it so they won't be anti-hunters. But number two, a fair percentage of them would continue to go do it if they have opportunity and access. So access, uh, mentors, all 
economies work against us, but that also means that if we can, in individual uh, situations, if we can overcome those barriers, I think the interest probably is still there more than a lot of people might think. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point. And like for myself, it's just it's part of my life, you know. If I, it's all I think about. Sure. If I, if I'm not hunting, um, you know, I'm thinking away. The, I'm already planning the next one. It, it's 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 just who I am, and it's part of what I've grown up doing, and it's just second nature to me. It's just I don't even think about it as like a a hunting trip, and you know, this is what I got to spend all the money on. It's just like I have to do this sort of thing. But you know, for somebody who hasn't yeah. grown up in that environment, like you mentioned. It's it's a lot it's a lot to overcome. There's some significant barriers to entry there, and um, you know, like how do we how do we how do we grow that? Like how do we what how do we spread that? How do we recruit more people to this lifestyle or this activity? What can we do? Well, I think one of the things we all could probably do is to make sure that. Um, Number one, we set a good example by what we do. And those of us in the media, obviously, can potentially reach more people more efficiently than if we don't have that kind of a voice or that kind of an outlet for for what we do. So, so number one, for those of us that are in the industry, I think, obviously, we want to set a good example. We want to encourage people. And we want to look for opportunities individually. You know, here's the thing. If every hunter, if every deer hunter in North America right now, let's say there's 10 million of them. There's probably a little bit more than that. But let's just say there's 10 million. If every one of them recruited one hunter per year, we, you know, obviously, uh, you know, by definition, we just doubled our, the number of hunters. Does that mean they'd all stay hunters? No, not, of course not. I mean, some of them would never go again. But a fair percentage of those people would probably say, hey, I like this, uh, but we can't get the average person to go take that step. People are too caught up in what they're doing. They're too busy. They're, or they, they say, well, I can, I'm in a hunting club, and my hunting club has a rule that you can't even bring a guest. Well, you say, well, so I can't, even, I can't even bring a new hunter out here and teach him anything. Well, maybe you need to get together with your buddies and talk about your rules yeah. and say, look, one, week, one weekend a year, let's bring some neighbor kids out here and you know if they've had their safety and all that stuff that's taken care of but you know they're they're hunter ed and all these things and at least expose them to it and if they want to if they want to do more of it then great uh we'll figure that out as we go but let's first let's let's get their feet wet and you know and do it in a positive way but it's very similar i think adam to like you know if you're going to take a kid and get them hooked on fishing you don't start out on some remote, windswept, you know, 35-degree day <laughs> in the middle of Canada throwing, throwing half-pound lures for muskies. I mean, you, just, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, don't, you know, and maybe get one bite every three or four days, you know, and that's not how you get somebody hooked on something, literally. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, I mean, you take them to the local pond when the weather is nice and the fish are biting and you, and you help them catch six-inch bluegills, and then they get the bug, you know. Yeah. Well, it's the same way. It's the same way with hunting. You don't necessarily try to take your eight-year-old out and turn him into a trophy whitetail guy. The first, you know, the first thing. I mean, you take him out, and there's still a lot of opportunity to go hunt squirrels and rabbits and pheasants, and even if it's a preserve, take them out and and let them shoot uh, some released quail. Let them let them go out and hunt the geese or something with you. Or at least go sit in the blind and just take it all in. I mean, there's there's ways to do it, but we have to stop 
you know, what we're doing for our own interest long enough to really look at the bigger picture. And I think a lot of us get busy and, you know, I won't say selfish, but we just tend to focus on our own success so much that we forget that there's still a need to be mentors. Yeah, yeah, that's a really... Really good point, Gordon. Um, you know, all, all of us can do a better job of that, including myself, uh, for sure. It's it's something that we need to do to to continue this this industry to uh, to help grow it, and uh, ultimately, more money going back in for conservation and animals. So it's uh, all good tips there for sure. Now, what? Uh, yeah, I think I oh, think I think honestly, if yeah, I was going to say, I think honestly, if you look at it and you you bring up a good point there, Adam, when you say, well, there's uh, uh, we need the money for conservation because we really do. I mean, if you look at who's paying for conservation, it is it is hunting and fishing revenues. It is not the non-consumptive crowd. Now, we all would love to see if somebody wants to to go out and you know walk down a trail. Uh, if they're hunting, we charge them. If they're not hunting, we don't charge them, or we don't charge them the same thing. Well, they're both having an impact on that environment. They're both enjoying that location and that ecosystem, but only one of them is paying for it. And, and yes, we have had difficulty coming up with a way to charge the non-consumptive user, if you want to use that term. Um, But but we still have to work harder to find ways to pay the bills here. And as the number of hunters and fishermen go down – if it goes down 20%, we can't just automatically start charging 20% more for hunting and fishing licenses or 20% more tax on binoculars or whatever. I mean, we need to find ways to get those other people to pay their fair share because they're enjoying nature to the same extent. Just because you're looking at a bird as opposed to trying to shoot a bird, I mean, you know, still an I mean, impact. both people are taking advantage of that resource, but only one of them is paying for it. So yeah. we really do need to come up with creative ways, and it's not just all excise taxes. It's not just all grants and government programs and stuff, but let the marketplace you know, come up with a balanced way for everybody to pay their fair share. For sure, for sure. Now, before before we wrap things up here, I want to get your take on chronic wasting disease and, and, and where we're at today. Is it is it the biggest threat? you know, against our deer herd, um, you know, what's the future of it look like? Um, what's, what's your whole take on chronic wasting disease and the, and the status of where it's at today in North America? Well, it's a tough question, obviously, or we would have answered it before now. Um, that's it. And I'm not a pathologist, epidemiologist, any kind of ologist, and certainly not a biologist. I am just, I'm just a, you know, just another guy that hunts deer, but I will say from my unique perspective perhaps of kind of a, the 30,000 foot view, I look at it and I say, well, we don't yet know truly what causes it. Now, this, the question still exists, are the prions or the mutated proteins in the brain and, and the spinal uh, fluids that are apparently causing the, the symptoms in the animals, and it's obviously it's always, always fatal, once they have it, are these prions actually what's causing it, or are they an artifact of something else? For instance, this this talk now about a super bacteria that probably really is behind it, and that these prions are just an artifact of the bacterial um, uh, process in the system. So number one, we don't even know yet really what causes it. 
there is work being done toward, you know, at least trying to come up with a with a vaccine for captive herds. But a lot of the captive herds, I think, have gotten a bad rap, to be honest with you, because many of those herds have never had CWD documented. They've been tested and tested and tested for years now and are, quote, clean. So I think, honestly, it's a little misdirected probably to, to be bashing the, the urine companies and some of the some of the captive breeders and things like that. I'm not sure we could always say that those people are at fault. In fact, I'm sure I'm sure it's 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 wrong to say that they're all at fault. There could be some problems caused by some of that. Yeah. Uh, and and there's no doubt that we have seen in some captive populations, deer and elk, we have seen some situations where those quote pins were infected and where we had multiple. Um, you know, multiple animals that contract the disease over time, even if you go back to Colorado State, obviously, and you go back and look at the original pins from 1967, well, with their elk herd, well, Arkansas brought elk, you know, from, from out west and put them in and did that just without probably maybe too much thought, and then the whitetail CWD cases in Arkansas have tended to be in areas where the elk got restocked. Okay, so is that a coincidence? Well, beats me. But that's something that the states and uh, organizations did. It wasn't just private deer breeders saying, oh, I'm going to go sneak some deer or some elk into my state, and I don't care what, if they're diseased or not. I mean, could some of that have gone on? Well, sure, we're talking about people, and anything could explain some cases. But as a group, I don't know that we can even say what the root cause of this is at this point. And if you look at the, the Mount Horb area, uh, you know, southern Wisconsin, obviously the epicenter of where they were going to, you know, quote, eradicate the whitetails and get rid of this, I mean, good grief, there's, you know, they, they didn't even come close to eradicating the deer. They still have CWD there, but they still have healthy deer there too, and very low percentage of these deer ever get infected in the wild. And that's the thing about it. All these doom and gloom forecasts from 15 years ago or 20 years ago now that, oh, it's going to be the end of the whitetail, all those places still have way over 90%, you know, healthy deer, like 98% for that matter, and the deer are still just what they always were. It's just that you have some of these cases. Yeah. Now, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm not saying, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm not that smart, but I will say this, that if you look at it and say, okay, we've got CWD, it has never been known through any sort of a variant or any way, shape, or form to cross over into humans or anything else. We can't prove that that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. And there's a lot of people eating a lot of deer from a lot of places, and we haven't found one case where we could trace that. So I don't think that's an issue. And, and then you ask yourself, well, why would CWD be such a big issue and EHD, which kills hundreds of thousands of deer every year, doesn't seem to bother anybody. It's because there's people aren't worried about getting EHD in humans, and there's no talk about it being a, quote, brain disease. But the biggest factor to me of all is just like, you know, you hear now, and it's, it's sad, but you hear people say, look, the medical industry has no incentive to cure cancer. 
Now, that's, that's a slap to our humanity to hear that. Because we say, well, why would we not cure cancer? I mean, Dwight Shue, good friend from Bowhunter Magazine, passed away from cancer yesterday. Um, I mean, there's just it's a terrible disease. Why would why would humanity not do everything possible to wipe it out? But some people will, will cynically say, and I don't know if they're right or not, they say, look, there's too much money being made off cancer treatment and cancer research to ever want to truly get rid of it. Now, I'd like to think that's not true, but let's just assume that we can apply that same logic to chronic wasting disease. There's millions of dollars currently being spent annually to, quote, you know, research and find a vaccine and do and to study CWD. There's a ton of money coming out of all these government agencies to do that. There are people whose livelihood would dry up, honestly, or they'd have to go find a different job if CWD went away. Now, I'm not saying that that's, that they're consciously trying to make something that it's not. But I will say that if you're a cynic about it, that that thought crosses your mind that there may not be a huge incentive to truly get to the bottom of it. And that sounds like some conspiracy theory, and it does sound crazy to talk about it. But you can see that certain people out there have made a really good living off CWD, and I'm not so sure <clears throat> how hard they're really trying to get to the total bottom of it or even figure out exactly what causes it. I think it's just there's a money flow going now that, uh, like it or not, that, that money is flowing. Now, yeah. one, can, one, one can argue that, no, that's crazy talk, and maybe it is crazy talk. But I will say this, it's turned into its own industry and industries tend not to want to dissolve themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I almost think, you know, in today's era of social media, the media itself, um, you know, there's more deer now. It's like, you know, it's getting all this press sure. and it's getting all this coverage. Is the percentage higher mm-hmm. itself in the in the actual population than it was 20 years ago? I don't know, but, like, it's obviously getting more coverage. Um, you know, is it growing? Um, maybe is it, but you know obviously it's just getting more talk uh, more press and more coverage so we're we're perceiving maybe that it's possibly worse than it actually is in retrospect it may just be you know a larger number of deer but the percentage wise may be the same or who knows even less uh, i think that's just the nature of our era of society that we're at today yeah well news travels quickly good or bad but especially bad it seems like and yep. and and here here's the fact of the matter if you suddenly start testing for something that you previously weren't looking for guess what you might actually find more <laughs> of it even though there is no more of it exactly and so that that's the real point about some of the CWD testing is that and I've been on deals and you know I've been on ranches in Texas where the biologists the state biologists would say, look, we want to do a CWD test, so we're going to pull brain stems from X number of deer. And we'd literally go out and ride around the pasture and say, well, there's a doe, shoot her, shoot her, shoot her, come back with six does. They pull the brain stems, they do all the, that, that work, they take them to the lab, they say, oh, no CWD. Well, we didn't, we didn't expect CWD because there'd never been any there. And there's no evidence of any clinical symptoms at all. And no unexplained deer deaths or anything, no no emaciated deer walking around, you know, looking for a place to die. But yet the states are, you know, I would say in some cases, maybe they're going overboard with testing. It's hard to say that, you know, it, it, it doesn't always sound right when you say, well, look, I don't think you should be testing as much 
for this really bad disease because people, common sense says, well, why wouldn't you want us to find it? The fact is, it may have been there all along, and because you didn't have a name for it or you weren't looking for it, you didn't know it. And frankly, the deer herd was doing fine even with it. So then, and people weren't dying from eating deer meat that had it. So then the question is, is it just yet another natural condition for whatever reason that exists in the environment? It's always been there. It always will be there. And you may as well just manage around it. And I personally think that's more likely the best, the best approach. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All, all, all good points there. Um, well, Gordon, I've I've kept you on here for a while, but uh, before we jump off, what what's your plans for 2019? Is is Gordon Whittington going to come out to the mountains and hunt elk? <laughs> well, let's uh, let let let's see. I have I literally, to be honest with you, have not gotten very far into my planning. I will say that I know the one thing that I will do this year that if I am still breathing. Um, on December 3rd of this year, I will be sitting under a certain tree on our ranch, our home ranch back in Texas. And I'll tell you why. On, De- on the afternoon of December 3rd, 1969, which will have been 50 years, obviously, to the day, to the afternoon, to the hour, in fact, of uh, Sitting under that tree on our ranch, I shot what I still consider to be my most special and my most favorite deer. Now, it was a long way from my biggest deer, but he was the first deer I ever found hunting by myself and hunted that deer specifically from late October when I first saw him till December 3rd when I killed him. That one deer became a quest, and when I killed that deer... I mean, if you'd have told me, you know, to me, he's a world record. Now, he's a he's a 120-something-inch 11-pointer, but a mature buck, and he was the buck I was trying to kill, and nobody else lifted a finger to help me. I did it all by myself. I found him, and I shot him, and so to me, that is still the most special whitetail I have ever shot of all my places I've been and all the deer I've taken, and so I said, if I live long enough, I said it years ago, I said the 50th anniversary of killing that deer. I know what tree I was sitting under on the ground. I, you know, I know everything about it. I can walk right back to that tree and I say, look, I don't, I've never even hunted there since then, but we still have that land. We still have that tree. And I am going to be sitting under that tree on the <laughs> afternoon of December the 3rd. Not that I expect to see or shoot another deer. I don't. I'm just going to relive a 50-year memory Wow! sitting under that tree. And, and I'm actually going to carry the same gun. It's going to be the old Remington 742 semi-auto 6mm with an old, I think it's still got an old Weaver K4 scope on it, probably. But we still have the gun. And I'm going to carry that same gun. I'm going to go get, make sure it's sighted in, but I'm going to carry that same gun back and sit under that tree. I'm not, I'm not going to film it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go by myself and sit under that tree and just reminisce and feel like I'm blessed to even have the chance to do that. Wow. Now, That's going to be special. If I, if I kill the state record or I don't <laughs> see a chickadee, it's all the same to me because I'm literally just going to go relive a 50-year memory. Uh, because I have the opportunity. Not many people have that chance to do that. How no. many people, 
would you know that could even do that? So to me, I don't care what else I do this year, and I'm sure I'll have some nice hunts here and there and a lot of them for TV and stuff, but nothing's going to matter more to me or is is as high a priority for me as going back and doing that on the afternoon of December the 3rd. Wow, that's so, that's gonna be great. I don't know where else you'll find me this fall, but December third, <laughs> that's where you'll see me. That's all that matters. That's all that matters, right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, very yeah. cool. And it really, I mean, we'll have some, we'll have we'll have a lot of other hunts, and we'll probably bow hunt, and gun hunt, and do all these things in different places. But I just, I, I have reserved that little block of time for being back on the ranch, and uh, whatever else happens before after that, you know, is uh, is kind of gravy to me. But I really do want to do that. Oh, that's, that's great, Gordon. That'll be, that'll be fun to relive that moment for sure. Um, well, I've, I've kept you here long enough and I, and again, Gordon, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and, uh, appreciate you and, uh, we'll definitely have to get you back on at some point to talk a little bit more about Western whitetail strategy and kind of dive into some of that stuff if you're up for it in the future. I'm always up for talking about whitetails, buddy. So uh, feel free to call anytime, and we'll uh, we'll chit chat about it. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's always fun. And let's face it, a deer hunter, deer season itself doesn't last all year, but thinking about deer does. And so, uh, you know, anytime from January through December, you 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 call. We'll talk about deer. Okay. Sounds good, Gordon. Thanks again. All right. Take care, buddy. All right, and there it is, another episode in the books. A big thanks to Gordon for coming on the show. Had a blast talking everything whitetail, and he just gets me pumped up about you know deer hunting in general and and where we're at today. And I'm I'm already you know thinking about the next public land hunt. So we'll definitely have to have Gordon back on to talk some strategy, tactics, and and just have a all around good time. So thanks again to Gordon. If you're if you're like me, I'm I'm trying to plan out where I'm going for 2019. I'm not 100% sure what I'm doing, but if you're in that same boat and you're thinking of a public land elk hunt here in Colorado, hit me up. Send send me a contact uh, note. You can go to transitionwild.com and fill out the contact page. And um, as you as you may know from some of the previous episodes. My buddy's dad has this camp, and uh, it's a couple cabins up at Treeline, uh, or at 10,000 feet, surrounded by the National Forest, and and we book those out for hunters that come in um, and hunt elk on public land. It's 625 bucks a person, four group minimum, and you got a nice warm bed and a cabin to come back to after your elk hunting. The access is amazing. Uh, the views are amazing. The elk hunting is good. And uh, it's just an all-around good time. So if you're looking to hunt bull elk, big bull elk in Colorado, and you don't want to do the whole backcountry thing, set up a tent, pull out a camper, or go with a guide per se, this is that hybrid. Um, you know, no guiding on our part, but you basically just get the access in a, in a, a wonderful spot to stay, high elevation in the Rocky Mountains. So hit me up. If you're planning that hunt and you're interested in booking that for this fall, this September, um, both mule deer and white t- uh, mule deer and elk, um, that's certainly a possibility. So go to transitionwild.com, fill out the contact form. I'd certainly love to talk with you further on that. All right, that is it. I won't get I won't keep you guys here any longer. Make sure you're subscribing to the podcast. You're following Sportsman's Nation on social media, Facebook, Instagram. You're doing the same with Transition Wild. I appreciate all the love. Hope you guys are all doing well. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.